Good morning, church family. Um, Before we continue our series this morning, I just want to say a word about the decision this week by the jury in the Derek Chauvin trial. Um, We know that Derek Chauvin uh, was convicted on all charges in the killing of George Floyd. And while we hope that this brings George Floyd's family and the people of Minnesota some consolation, our country's work around racial righteousness and reconciliation is not done. You know, the fact remains that George Floyd's life was needlessly taken. George Floyd's death illuminates a broader issue regarding the frequency with which deadly force is deployed by law enforcement against black and brown citizens and neighbors when alternative choices, non-lethal choices, could and should be made. This is not an indictment of all police officers and the many men and women in law enforcement. We know that many serve with dignity and equity and selflessness, and we applaud them and commend their service. This needs to be said. At the same time, when an officer demonstrates disregard for human life, as was the case with Derek Chauvin, in the murder of George Floyd, law enforcement must be held accountable. There is much work that still needs to be done to create lasting change and tactical reform within police departments. So we're reminded this morning that the work is not done we must continue to speak up and practice solidarity. In Luke 10, an expert in the law famously asks Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Well, George Floyd was our neighbor. Made in God's image, and that image was violated when his life was violently taken. The sin that informs a legal system that works for some and against others is worthy of our lament and calls us forth as ambassadors of reconciliation. We all must name the sin of racism by speaking truth in love. We cannot remain silent. Not speaking up has led us to this perilous time. So church, May we not grow weary in standing in solidarity with those who have been wronged and treated unjustly. There is no quick or easy fix to heal our pandemic of racism. It will take time and every single one of us. This is a systemic problem and we must continue to actively work every single day to address it while working to reconcile relationships within disenfranchised communities. This is one of the most important discipleship issues before us. As followers of Jesus, racial righteousness should be a part of our everyday lives, interwoven into who we are and integrated into everything that we do. We believe that to understand the whole gospel is to understand that racial righteousness is a part of discipleship. Can I get an amen? May we all understand this truth and work together to bring personal, systemic, and real transformation in our communities. 
Now, ever since our lives were upended by this pandemic, I've asked you, church, this question. Do you want life to go back to normal? Do you want life to go back to normal if normal was a life of prayerlessness? Do you want life to go back to normal if normal was a life without community? Do you want life to go back to normal if normal was a life of greed and fear and self-sufficiency? Don't you want to emerge from this pandemic a different person? See, I think for many of us, normal was assuming that we'd live 70, 80, 90 years and expecting that our plans were going to work out and life would just kind of go on as planned. Truth be told, some of us, I think, even feel entitled to it. But if there's one thing that this pandemic has reminded all of us, it's reminded us once again that we are frail, that life is fragile, and we depend on God for everything, every single day of our lives. Whether that be the air that we breathe or the food on our tables. We take so much for granted. We live so much of our lives just assuming, expecting that life as we know it will continue as is until that cancer diagnosis, until that pink slip comes along, until that pandemic shuts down an entire economy. I don't know about you, but James 4 has a new resonance these days with me. James 4 verse 13 says, Listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. You know, during this pandemic, I've said that phrase a lot, Lord willing, Lord willing. And if I'm really honest with you, I used to roll my eyes at people who said that, okay? But I'm that guy now, Lord willing. I will see you tomorrow. Lord willing, we will talk to each other again. Lord willing, we will live and do this or that. See, church, there is no guarantee of tomorrow, is there? Lord willing, tomorrow might come, but it also might not. But we do have what? Today. And Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 34, Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And here is the good news, and this is where we're going for today, okay? Your heavenly Father promises to give you everything you need for today's troubles. Not tomorrow's troubles but today's troubles. 
When tomorrow's troubles come, your heavenly Father will make sure that you have what you need for tomorrow. And he'll do it this way, check this out, because he wants to remind you and me that a relationship with him entails total trust and total dependence. This thing called the Christian life does not work apart from total trust and total dependence. Jesus says in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. And do you know what that word nothing means in Greek? It means nothing, okay? That's what it means. This thing called the Christian life does not work apart from total trust and total dependence. And here's the good news. Your heavenly father is totally trustworthy. Your heavenly father is totally dependable. And he says that he loves you and he cares for you. So you can trust him and you can depend on him. Is that good news? That's good news. If you're just joining us, we've been going through the Lord's Prayer, and we've literally just gone through each petition of the Lord's Prayer. And today is part two of looking at the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Give us today our daily bread. And our outline is pretty simple. We talked about this last week. We're looking at each word of this fourth petition to see what they mean and how they apply to us today. And last week, we looked at the last word of this petition, bread, and the first word of this petition, give us. And in teaching us to pray for bread, Jesus was reminding us what? That our Heavenly Father cares about the most basic, the most ordinary matters in our lives. The Father whom we come to know in Jesus is actually interested in, concerned about life's most basic concerns, life's most basic necessities. We are God's what? Personal concern. And in teaching us to pray, give us, Jesus was reminding us what? That no matter how basic, no matter how ordinary or trivial our requests, we are invited to go after God with shameless audacity. Shameless audacity about everything. He says, ask, seek, and knock. The greatest tragedy in life are prayers that go unanswered simply because they go unasked. James 4 says, you do not have because what? You do not ask. Asking is critical in God acting. I love that hymn. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege it is to carry everything to God in So today, we're going to look at the other two words of this petition, daily and are. Daily and are. And just like last week, we'll see what the words mean and then see how they apply to us today. You ready? All right. So first, give us today our daily Now, when Jesus taught this petition, he was evoking a very familiar incident that happened in the life of Israel, 
right? The story is found in Exodus chapter 16. So turn your Bibles there. Now, after leaving Egypt, they wandered in the desert for 40 years, and they couldn't support themselves through hunting and agriculture, the usual way of sustenance. So what did God do? God sent manna. Heavenly bread and the manna appeared on the ground every single morning. And God's instructions to them were clear. Exodus 16, verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. See, God makes it clear to his people that there will be enough bread for that day and that day only. They're specifically commanded not to save up for the next day. There will be no doggy bags in the wilderness. And now why does God do this? He tells us, verse 4, In this way, God says, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. Will they obey God's clear instructions and what was God after in their obedience their trust their trust will you obey me because you trust me you see obedience and trust go hand in hand just like following Jesus and trust go hand in hand you will not follow someone that you don't trust Listen, if you're someone listening this morning who's not wholeheartedly and radically following Jesus today, it's because you don't trust him. So God was saying, will you obey me? Will you do as I say because you trust that I am your God who knows what you need even before you ask me and will provide for you? It goes on, verse 5. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So they're being commanded to gather for two days' worth on the sixth day. There would be no gathering on the seventh day. See, in their work of gathering six days a week and resting on the seventh, God was once again reminding them of the sanctity of the one day in seven, the sanctity of the Sabbath. See, God was instituting Sabbath keeping as a reminder to his people that it was not by the power of their hands that there would be provision, but by the power of what? His hands. The quick application before we move on. Disobeying the Sabbath, violating the Sabbath, is the clearest way that you and I say to God, I do not trust you to provide for my needs. You may have created the heavens and the earth, God, but when it comes to meeting my needs, I know better. When it comes to caring for my family, I know better. When it comes to my unknown future, I know better. So no, I'm not going to honor the sacred rhythm of the Sabbath. Who has time for that? Come on, church. Keeping the Sabbath is about trust. 
Sure, it absolutely does us some good. You ultimately break down if you violate the Sabbath again and again. But Sabbath keeping is about trust. It's trusting that God is able, more than able, to provide for my needs, my family's needs, and my church's needs, even when I am not doing anything. It's about trusting that the world will not fall apart without my involvement for one day. Listen, I'm going to pick on some of you today, okay? But I promise you, your office is not going to call you, okay, and say, where are you? Our entire department just shut down because you weren't here today, Shelly. The whole company just folded. If only you had just been here, it won't happen. Trust me. So let me ask you a question. Is Sabbath keeping something that you see as being optional? Is Sabbath keeping something that you get around to, you know, so when you have time? Or is Sabbath keeping something that you honor as a sacred sanctity that God instituted for us? Now, back to the story. Now, obeying God's instructions should have been a no-brainer for them, right? I mean, think about it. They witnessed the parting of the Red Sea. They saw fresh water gushing forth from a rock in the middle of a desert. Can God be trusted? Yes! So what did the people of God do? Do you remember? They promptly went out and gathered more than what they needed for that day. And look what happened when they disobeyed God because they didn't trust him and took matters into their own hands. Verse 20, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. Uh, You've heard me say this before. We often make the mistake of reading these stories as if they are about some other people, right? But their story, church, is our story. Let me put it this way. How much of the stink in our lives is the direct result of us taking matters into our own hands and disobeying God because we just didn't trust him to come through for us in his time and his way? Come on, church. How much of the relational stink? How much of the financial stink? How much of the career marriage stink comes from us taking charge of our lives because we just didn't trust God? I'd say that most of the stink in our lives are due to something as simple as that. You want your life to stink? And disobey the clear commands of God and take matters into your own hands. And listen, if you're somebody here today who's tired of the stink coming from your kitchen, then do something about it. Our God is the God of redemption and healing and forgiveness. He has an amazing ability to bring beauty from ashes, joy from mourning, and praise from despair. Bring that mess to God and say, God, here, you take it. 
I'm so sorry that I tried doing this my way because I just didn't trust you. Here, Father, take it. I submit and I surrender to you. Your heavenly Father specializes in resurrections. He could take any dead, lifeless thing and bring redemption and salvation and healing out of it. Amen? Amen. So the incident that Jesus evokes in this petition was to teach God's people that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who delivered them from 400 years of oppressive bondage and slavery in Egypt, the God who entered into a covenant relationship of love with them, can be trusted. He can be depended on. His name is Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. God was teaching his people in every age to trust, not in the provision, but in the provider. The same God who provided for you today will provide for you tomorrow. And that is why God leaves them with instructions for the manna to be kept in the tabernacle for all time. That's why when you get to the book of Hebrews, here's what you find. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 4. In that room were a gold incense altar and a wooden chest called the Ark of the Covenant, which was covered with gold on all sides. And inside the Ark were a gold jar containing manna, Aaron's staff that sprouted leaves and the stone tablets of the covenant. Manna was kept in the tabernacle so that people can see it and say, that right there is a reminder to us that for 40 years in the wilderness, God never missed a single day in giving to us our daily bread. There was never a day in which he did not provide. And manna was kept there so that one generation could speak to the next generation about the wonder of God's provision. So what's Jesus teaching us through this petition for daily bread? I think Jesus is calling for more than just words. Jesus is calling for a lifestyle that matches the words that we pray. And what's it look like? Three things. Dependence, gratitude, contentment. Dependence, Gratitude and contentment. First is dependence, a lifestyle of dependence. Do you realize that this isn't just a petition? It's a declaration, church. <laughs> this fourth petition is a declaration, not of independence, but of dependence. When you and I pray, give us today our daily bread, we are acknowledging our daily dependence on God. Let's be honest, we don't want to be dependent on anyone or anything. But the prayer that Jesus wants and calls us to declare the very thing that we don't want in praying, give us today our daily bread, we're saying, Father, you are my provider, not me. What I have is the power by the strength of your hands and not mine. Think about it, the Israelites went out there and had to work in order to gather the manna. 
But the manna was there to gather in the first place because God graciously sent it as a gift. Can you imagine one of the Israelites saying, you know, I've earned this manna with my hard work. Come on. Without God, all the hard work in the world wouldn't have gotten you what you have. Unless God is the one who provides, we have no hope. A lesson that many of us are tempted to forget because we don't have to struggle to survive. Like most of you parents, I taught our kids to thank God for the bread and food we have to eat. We do that every meal. But how many of us actually teach our kids to ask God for the food we eat? We just tend to assume that there will be food, right? And we just expect not just daily bread, but storehouses of bread. Now, in one sense, this is a blessing, right? I mean, we live in the richest nation in the world, in the richest time in the history of the world. And it's a blessing to not have to struggle for daily sustenance. But it is also a profound danger, church. Because we are more than any other people who have ever lived, tempted to forget God and live under the illusion. And it is an illusion, church, that we are the providers. And in this petition, Jesus is helping us break out of this illusion and helping us to recognize that even though life is way more fragile than we think, our Heavenly Father is way more kind than we imagine. Is that good news? And we can depend on Him because He is dependable. Our confidence for today is not that it'll be like yesterday. Our confidence for today is that our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That is our real security, not our savings, not our bank account. Our life is way more fragile than we think. But the good news is our Heavenly Father is way more kind than we imagine. And He promises that I will provide the grace that you need for today's trials. And why only today? You know why. If God provided for a year's worth, we'd forget about the provided for a year until the next time we needed him. It's a tendency of the sinful human heart to miss the giver of all gifts and focus solely on the gifts. And I've asked you throughout this series, are you only after what's in his hands? Or do you want what's in his heart? God is way more interested in you seeking his heart and not just what's in his hand. So God says, ask for daily bread, not weekly bread or monthly bread or lifetime's worth. Today's grace is for today's trials. Today, God will give you provision for today's needs. Today, God will give you peace for today's problems. Today, God will give you hope for today's despair. Today, God will give you light for today's darkness. Today, God will give you comfort for today's pain. And today, God will give you strength for today's weaknesses. God gives me mercies for today to meet today's burdens. Don't deal with tomorrow's problems with today's strength. 
You know what anxiety is? Anxiety is living out the future before it gets here. Faith is trusting that when the future comes, our Heavenly Father will be there to give us exactly what we need. I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I do know who holds tomorrow. My unknown future is in the hands of an all-knowing God. And you know what? He loves me, and he is for me. And he promises that all things work together for good of those who love him. And no, that is not a promise of life of ease and comfort because God is way more concerned about our transformation than he is about our comfort. So rather than giving us what we want, God will always give us what we need at just the right time, in just the right way, in just the right proportions to change us and to make us more like Jesus. God will do what it takes to shake your confidence in you so that you'll be able to place your confidence in him. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new what? Every morning. They are new what? Every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Dependent. Now, recognizing our dependence on God for all things then leads to gratitude. Gratitude. And this petition then calls us not just to a life of dependence, but a lifestyle of gratitude. Gratitude comes from recognizing that the source of all goodness comes from God. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is what? From above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. James says, every good and perfect gift is from above. Not just some, but every good and perfect gift is from above. So church, let's, let's get real here. Why aren't we more grateful? Why doesn't a lifestyle of gratitude characterize us? For some of us, it can just be pure busyness and distraction. We might feel gratitude, but we're just so busy and distracted. For some of us, it's an ingrained penchant for noticing the negative over the positive. Anybody? Anybody? And for others of us, it's envy. But real talk, church? Real talk? You know what for most of us it is? For most of us, the greatest obstacle to gratitude is pride. Pride. Pride is rooted in the inability to admit our dependency on anything or anyone. Pride. To admit that we need somebody hurts our pride. And of the different flavors, the pride that blocks gratitude takes, check this out, a sense of entitlement is undeniably the most significant. Let me talk to you this morning. At the heart of entitlement is this attitude. Whatever I've got, I've earned it. Whatever I got, I deserve it. Whatever I got, I had it coming. And if you think you earned it, that you deserve it, you won't be grateful. You'll be entitled. And church, 
Entitlement is relationally and spiritually toxic. Entitlement is relationally and spiritually toxic. The danger of entitlement is that it leads to believe that God owes us something. And if we believe that God owes us something, then the measure of our gratitude is not based on God's performance and the entitlements we expect from him. I've seen people walk away from the faith because, quote, God didn't work for me. And for many, the reason why God didn't work for them is because God was never made Lord, King of their lives. That was simply a means to get what they feel they were entitled to, whether that's material of abundance or comfort or life without problems, a nice house or the other things that our entitlement culture tells us we deserve. When this didn't happen, it's a simple decision to move on to the next thing. Church family, I love you. But I'm going to say the following thing that might be offensive to some of you. But I need to speak this truth in love. God owes us nothing. God owes you and me absolutely nothing. God is not entitled or obligated in any way to give us anything. He's God. He gives because he wants to, not because he has to. He is the center of all things. We are not. All things exist for his good pleasure. And the good news of the gospel is that even though God owes us nothing out of his great love, he will give us what we need and even things we desire. But let's be clear. God is never entitled to give us anything. It is purely from unconditional love by grace that he gives. Can I get an amen? If you do not recognize your dependence on God for all things, you will think you earned it. And if you think you earned it or deserve it, you won't be grateful. You'll be entitled. But if you know that you received everything you have simply as a gift, undeserved, you'll be grateful. And by the way, gratitude is a discipline rather than a feeling, you know, okay? The spiritual discipline it is a discipline of gratitude. It's intentionally chosen, deliberately trained, and exercised regularly. The spiritual discipline of gratitude is practiced, not just because it feels good, but because it's the right thing to do. Gratitude. So when you and I do that simple act, practice of praying around the table, we're doing something totally at odds with our culture. We live distant, far from the farmer, the butcher, the supply line. We can almost convince ourselves that this food does not really come from God. So we live with a sense of entitlement instead of a sense of gratitude. But you realize that every time we take bread in our hands, we are handling an answered prayer. Every piece of bread, bowl of rice, 
or slice of cheese or bite of an apple is literally an answer to someone's prayer. Every time the crop comes up, it's an answer to someone's prayer. Every time the food makes it from the farm to the store shelf, it's an answer to someone's prayer. And the only response is what? Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. And gratitude and leads to, finally, contentment. Contentment. Gratitude leads to a lifestyle of contentment. Praying for daily bread is praying, Father, you know what I need. So give me today what I need for this day. And check this out, nothing more and nothing less. This is a dangerous prayer. Because if we truly mean it, here's what we're saying. Father, help me to be satisfied with the ways and the amount you choose to give, even when it's different from what we choose. Father, you promised to supply all of our needs, and that means that what I don't have now, I don't need now. It's being satisfied with what God provides, trusting that what we have from our good giver is exactly what we need. It's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. Asking for daily bread reminds us that godliness with contentment is great gain. And you know that the word gain right there means literally mega wealth? Paul is literally saying that godly contentment, that right there is real wealth. To be content is the ability to be completely happy and to be utterly at rest, utterly at peace, no matter what your circumstances are. Can I ask you something? Are you restless? Do you have money in the bank but no peace in your heart? Is your career taking off while deep down you're saying, I'd trade everything in if I could just spend more time with people who matter to me? Are you finally in a relationship but find yourself wondering, is this it? Is this all there is? See, this word content here is what the Greek philosophers considered to be the highest virtue because they believed that the highest virtue was one where your inner peace was completely independent of your outer circumstances. No matter what's happening on the outside, no matter the storms of life, whether you have much or whether you have little, you could look out and say, I'm at peace. I'm good. Because your inner peace, your poise, isn't based on external circumstances. And Paul says, that right there, that's real wealth. That's real riches. Godliness with contentment is great Gain. I tell you what, in a greedy, materialistic world that we live in, contentment is a compelling testimony. It's not easy in a materialistic world to develop these holy habits, to learn to be satisfied, to be content with what God has provided for us. Uh, memorize this scripture right here. Memorize the scripture and make it your prayer. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 7. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. 
and give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. See what he's saying? That prayer right there is, Father, give us what we need for today so that we might hollow your name and not defame your name by taking life into our own hands and stealing. But Father, don't give us more than we need so that we are tempted to think life is in our hands and feel no need to pray. Dependence, gratitude, contentment. All of them is encompassed when we pray, give us what? Our daily bread. And finally, we come to the final word. Give us today our daily bread. Our daily bread. And we've noted from the very beginning that all the pronouns in the Lord's Prayer in the what? In the plural. Prayer should always remind us that we're part of a larger community of believers, right? Remember that. Remember that we are baptized into Christ. We are at the same time baptized into his body. We get God as Father, and we get his kids at the same time. You can't have one without the other. So every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, it ought to remind us of this powerful reality that there is no such thing as Christianity without community, without others. So listen. We begin with our Father, and now here we are praying for our daily bread. What does it mean? The fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer calls us to a lifestyle of solidarity. Lifestyle of solidarity with the whole family of God. When we pray for our daily bread, we're not just asking that God will provide and sustain brothers and sisters around the world, church. We're committing to sharing with our brothers and sisters around the world. What can we do to ensure that this prayer for daily bread is met? What can we do to eliminate fear and poverty and restore joy in the present and hope for the future? See, central to this petition, being in the plural, is the awareness that whatever the Father gives me is ours, not mine. It's not just for me, it's for others too. And Exodus 16 is once again instructive for us in this way. See, since gathering manna was a physical activity, not everybody was able to gather the same amount. Some people were able to gather faster or more than others. But we're told in Exodus that no matter how much you gathered, even if you gathered twice as much as somebody else, it was all pooled so that everybody got what the family needed. And isn't this what we see happening in the early church that turned their world upside down? Acts chapter 2, verse 44, all the believers met together in one place and says what? They shared everything they had. No, this wasn't some form of socialism. The radical sharing of the early Christians was totally voluntary and not forced, motivated by love and not law. And they turned their world upside down for Jesus. No wonder that James even goes on to say what? That this is the hallmark of our faith. This is what gives evidence to the reality of our relationship with God. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? 
Can such faith save him? Verse 15, suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is, say with me, dead. The promise of this fourth petition, church, is that God will provide for us everything that we need. And that means that whatever is beyond what we need, we are to share it. It's that simple. God provides us what we need. And if we have more than what we need, we are to share it. Sidebar, real quick. Let me just say this here. There's not a single person listening to me today who can just on their own accurately discern what I need and what is extra. Can we just agree to that? Does anybody listening today really believe that without community, without discernment of others, having lived and breathed a greedy materialistic culture that is all around us, that you, that I can all on our own determine what it is that we need so that we can share beyond what we need? Come on, church. Without people in our lives who can speak into these areas, we will more often than not live with a scarcity mentality, fear of not having enough. And do you have people in your life who can speak truth and love to you about this? One of the biggest scandals of our time is the huge disparity in basic life provision in the body of Christ. Many disciples of Jesus have more than what we can possibly use, and we worry about how to protect it. While many more disciples of Jesus wonder how to take care of basic, minimum needs of their families, and yet they seek to share what little they have. There's a Latin American prayer that captures the essence of the fourth petition perfectly. Here's what it says. To those who have hunger... Give bread. And to those who have bread, give the hunger for justice. To those who have hunger, give bread. And to those who have bread, give the hunger for justice. See, to pray, give us, leads us into solidarity with the whole family of God. And a lifestyle of solidarity means that we share what we have. The Father wants us to share what we have. In his lengthy treatment on generosity in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul actually comes right out and explicitly says it. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, And God will generously provide all that you need. Then you will have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. As the scripture says, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. According to scripture, what is God's plan to feed the poor and the hungry, church? What is it? By raining down manna from heaven? No. You are God's plan. I am God's plan. We are God's plan to feed the poor. We are God's plan provision to provide bread for them. 
Proverbs 22.8, those who plant injustice will harvest disaster and their reign of terror will come to an end. Blessed are those who are generous because they feed the poor. This proverb makes a connection between justice and generosity, doesn't it? And if you've been around New Community for a while, you know that I've taught you that a lack of generosity is not just being stingy, it's unjust. To those who have hunger, give bread. And to those who have bread, Father, give the hunger for justice. The fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer calls us to a lifestyle of solidarity with the whole family of God. When we pray this petition, we're saying, Father, you didn't just give it to me for me so that I can stash it, look at it, parade it, or gorge myself on it. No, I have a responsibility beyond myself, Father. Because to whom much is given, what? Much is required. And you and I have a responsibility for those who do not have personally, economically, societally, nationally. Let me read you something. Mother Teresa records an incident from her life in Calcutta. I'll never forget the night an old gentleman came to our house and said there was a family with eight children and they had not eaten and could we do something for them? So I took some rice and went there. The mother took the rice from my hands, then she divided into two and went out. I could see the faces of the children shining with hunger. When she came back, I asked her where she had gone, and she gave me a very simple answer. They are hungry also. And they were the family next door, and she knew that they were hungry. I was not surprised that she gave, but I was surprised that she knew. I had not the courage to ask her how long her family hadn't eaten, but I am sure it must have been a long time. And yet she knew in her suffering, in her terrible bodily suffering, she knew that next door they were hungry also. They were hungry also. This woman with eight children may not have known the Lord's Prayer, but there was only our rice and not my rice, even when her own children were hungry. The prayer for our bread includes the neighbors always. It is always our Father and our bread. We cannot pray, give us, and not be givers ourselves, church. To those who have hunger, give bread. And to those who have bread, give the hunger for justice. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, 
We praise you for being a father who is interested in, concerned about our most basic concerns, life's most basic necessities. What a joy it is to know, Father, that we are your personal concern. Deliver us, Father, we pray, from the fear of not having enough. Give us bread for today, and with it, give us confidence that tomorrow we will have enough. You promise to supply all of our needs, and so whatever is beyond what we need, help us to share. Father, remind those of us who have been blessed in this life with so much that we have a weighty responsibility to whom much is given, much is required. Help us to share freely and give generously to those in need. Father, will you keep us from becoming arrogant and placing our hopes in what we have? Help us to place our hopes in you. Your name is Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. Our security is not in work, but the God who gives us the ability to work. Our security is not in our food, but the God who gives us food. Our security is not in our savings, but the inheritance that is ours in Christ Jesus. Our security, our sustenance, our wealth, is you, Jesus. If we have you, that's enough. That's enough. Give us this day our daily bread. In Jesus' name. And as we end today's service, church, we declare this benediction that anchors us together and that so resonates with what we talked about today. Here we go. We believe that we were created to live deeply with one another, to carry each other's burdens, to share our possessions, to share our possessions, to share our possessions, and to pray for and confess our sins to each other, to suffer and celebrate together. Because it is in these sacred relationships and honest, loving communities that God transforms us. The way of Jesus cannot be lived alone. Have a blessed rest of the day, church, and we will see, hopefully, many of you in a little bit during our members' meeting. Take good care.